You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules, and keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes, and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. 
lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am Yahweh your God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 608 of this podcast. That was Leviticus chapter 18 concerning, as you might guess, unlawful sexual relations. And this just goes to show that what we do with our bodies is important to God. It's not no big deal. It's not do whatever feels good. It's not, hey, I have needs or I got to live my truth. Not according to God. According to God, your body is a temple and you're going to be worshiping either Yahweh God as a living sacrifice with your body or you're going to be worshiping some pagan God or a multiplicity of pagan gods. So the choice really is what does the human body get used for and how does that reflect on God's character? That, that really is the choice. We get to make the choice. God leaves us that option. But what we're not supposed to do is act like unreasonable animals, brute beasts. Peter talks about brute beasts in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Here he is talking about false prophets and false teachers, those who are carnal. They're not actually godly people. They make some kind of a claim to be, but they don't represent God. And you know that because of how they indulge themselves. They indulge themselves with food and with drink and with sexual immorality. They are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. And I think this is something that's lost on a lot of people who aren't looking for it. This is why we're warned to beware of false prophets and false teachers it's lost on a lot of us that somebody thinking very quickly and being able to have sharp responses and present very convincingly can be just as easily a sign that they're just very instinctual. They have instincts like an animal has instincts. Animals can be very responsive as well, very intuitive. Animals can be very quick on their feet, thinking very quickly in response to a opportunity or a threat. People can be like animals. And it's not to say that there's no difference between people and animals. Only mankind, male and female, are created in God's image. But people are very often, Old Testament and New Testament, described and likened to and 
characterized by what animal they might be similar to. And here we're, we're not given specific animals. We're just told that these false prophets, false teachers, they are bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And there's something of a curious quality to that. So even the talking about false gods, demons, demoni, fallen angels, even that should be done with some care. Even though they might not be the most high God, you still want to be wise. You still want to be just like you would with a (laughs) dangerous wild animal. You still want to be careful because God has given this creature of his a capacity to either do harm or to protect itself. And people who are false prophets and false teachers don't take that seriously. They're just looking for the gain and the notoriety that they can get from talking flippantly about things. We don't want that to be true of us. We don't want that to be something that we're marked by. We also don't want it to be normalized just because it is common. If it becomes increasingly common, if these are the last days, which only the good Lord knows for sure, no man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man will come again a second time, the second coming of Christ. But we know that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. They won't be lovers of what is good and true. They'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure. Their gods will be their stomachs. And therefore, they're going to gather and multiply for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear, who flatter them, who affirm their lifestyle choices. And as that becomes increasingly common and as there's a broad spectrum of various kinds of tickling of various kinds of ears, what we don't want to do is be corrupted by that where we say, okay, well, everybody else is doing it, so why not me too? But going back to Leviticus for a little bit, just for a moment, I think one thing that stands out to me here in this chapter about sexual morality and sexual immorality is that you have a number of instances where this or that is forbidden that we actually saw some references to in Genesis. We saw some examples of this not being adhered to what God is laying out as his standard in Genesis. And actually, too, this is a common complaint from atheists and agnostics and non-believers, non-Christians. They'll say, well, where did Cain get his wife? And answers in Genesis, Ken Ham has answered that question for years and years, that Cain married one of his sisters. Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters over the course of their long lifespan, and their children just married each other. And it wasn't forbidden until right here, but that doesn't mean that it was okay in every variation that we saw people being mm, creative, shall we say in Genesis, being 
confused and chaotic in Genesis. We see this also with Lot and his daughters after they flee Sodom. We see a violation of the laws regarding sexual purity, sexual morality here in Leviticus 18. The two daughters of Lot get their father drunk and they sleep with him so that they can get pregnant by him. And just because the law had not been given yet, that doesn't mean that that was no big deal, that that was okay. Now, I would say it's a little bit of a different story early, early on in Genesis when you do have Adam and Eve and their children, and that's all the people that there are in the world. There's a little bit of a difference there, but Lot's daughters, did they have that as an excuse? I don't think so. I don't think they did. There were other people in the world, and if they would have just kept on searching until they found some new husbands, then they could have done better, and they didn't. Uh, Also, too, we have examples in the case of Judah and Tamar, for instance. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, and he has a couple of sons who are wicked. And it's not said precisely, specifically, in detail, everything that they did that displeased God, but they were very corrupt. And God knew what they were up to, and we don't necessarily need to know all of the particulars, but they very much displeased God, and so God struck them dead. And the one son of Judah had as a wife, before he was struck dead, a woman named Tamar. And when he died, she, following the custom of the time, was to be impregnated by her former brother-in-law, but her deceased husband's living, surviving brother. But he also was wicked and displeased God. And so God struck him dead as well because he was, in part, taking advantage of Tamar. God was not pleased by that at all and took it very seriously and put a stop to it, his name being Onan. But then there was another brother after Onan, and Judah, the father in this case, didn't want to give that son to Tamar, as again was the custom. And so what does she do? She disguises herself and waits at a crossroad dressed as a prostitute, and here comes Judah, And Judah has relations with her, gets her pregnant. When it comes out that she is pregnant, he is very quick to say, okay, she's been unfaithful or she's been immoral. So they must have had some notion of morality, even if it was just a cultural thing. But he is resolved to have her put to death. But she happens to have some personal effects of his, some physical items that he had left with her. And she asks, do you recognize these things? The man to whom these things belonged is the father of my baby. And he recognizes right away, of course, oh, those are my things. Oh, I see what happened here. Okay, well, (laughs) she's more righteous than I am, as he says. And so she's not put to death. And all of that is very... Ugh, right? You just say, wow, what a mess. And this is 
Again, another part of the Bible. These are several parts of the Bible that will never be made into veggie tales. Not to say that they should be, but I'm just saying these are not going to be presented to children in a flannel graph or with talking vegetables. And yet all scripture is breathed out by God. And so we need to be careful to not be more appropriate, more proper, and holier than God as if that were possible, because it's not. We need to pay attention that this is very serious and these laws are put down for our benefit, for us to be holy and healthy and happy and to live long, full lives. We do well to pay attention to what God says is and is not appropriate to do with our bodies sexually. So there are several things listed, including you don't have relations with various close family members. You don't do it. That is perverse. That is you hurting yourself. That is you hurting your family. Don't do that. You also see laws against homosexuality and bestiality. You see, on the one hand, laws against homosexuality for men. And on the other hand, you see laws against having sexual relations with animals. And so again, I want to return to this larger point that even though people are characterized or described, explained, likened to animals often throughout scripture, that is not to say that we are just animals. If it were true that we were just animals, then presumably we would not be given these laws regarding what not to do sexually. But we're given these commands and God says to not do these things. And anybody who does any of these things will be cut off from among their people. It's a very important point that we recognize. God says the land of Egypt was characterized by these behaviors. The land of Canaan has been characterized by these behaviors. You will not be. So where you came from, and where you're going to, both, are like this. You are not going to be like this. You are going to be holy. You will not be making yourself unclean because you are representing me to the nations. And if you will be unclean, you'll be cut off from among your people. It's not just your business. It's not just your business what you do with your body. That's a misnomer that we have in our day that what happens in the privacy of my own home is my choice and nobody can say anything about it. And that's not correct. That's not correct. That's not biblical. According to God, it's actually first and foremost, his business, what you're doing in the privacy of your own home. And here he says, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Now he doesn't say you can't have any kind of sexual relations of any sort. But this list here tells you, you can't do these things. This is all sexual immorality here. Now it's curious. We might be tempted to say homosexuality described here is called an abomination, particularly male homosexuality is called an abomination and bestiality is called a perversion. But then if you continue on Verse 29, everyone who does any of these abominations, that seems to imply that all of these are abominable. Now, maybe some are more abominable than others, but they're all 
immorality. These are all sexually immoral ways to conduct yourself or to behave or to relate to others of God's creatures. And he says, don't do it. If you belong only to yourself, and as long as there's consent, everybody else just belongs to themselves, then presumably God doesn't have any right to tell you, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this other thing. But here we have God speaking with authority because he's the one who made us. He is ultimately the Lord of all creation. He rules and reigns over all creation. He will ultimately judge. So he's speaking with authority. You can ignore what he said and you can suffer the consequences. You can mess around and find out. But if you're wise, you will understand this is for your protection as much as anything. This is to protect you and the other parties concerned. This is to protect your family and your legacy. These things are here as much as anything to protect you, and you should take that seriously. But moving on, on some happier notes, and we will be getting into uh, a book here that I just recently finished up last night, actually, before this episode is done. So stay tuned for that. Oz Guinness's Fool's Talk. I've got some thoughts on that. But Sunday afternoon was spent taking my family to our first Colorado Rockies Major League Baseball game. For most of Lauren's and my eight children, this was their first Major League Baseball game. For a couple of them, when they were very young, they saw the Cincinnati Reds play. But for most of them, this was their first experience. And this was only the second stadium I've ever seen a MLB game in. Certainly Cincinnati, but now I can say Denver as well. Coors Field, Coors Stadium, uh, beautiful. Really nice facility, very well-kept, well-designed, and comfortable. And it was just a gorgeous day. 70 degrees was the high in the forecast. We had a nice cool breeze, partly cloudy. We were up in the nosebleed, but it really wasn't so high. It, it wasn't. It was comfortable. Uh, John, Lauren's and my second to youngest, who is four and will soon be five years old, he was very nervous. He was very uncomfortable and kept holding on to everything and not wanting to move too much. You could tell he was a little unnerved by being up so high. But we went with our friends, the Pavliks, the Bergmans, the Kavanaugh's, the Crosses, the Edens, and just had a lovely time. It was a really pleasant afternoon, a long walk from the parking lot to the stadium, two miles each way. And there were so many people waiting for shuttles. We just decided to walk it. And so Lauren carried Andrew, our youngest, and I, on the way to the stadium, carried John. On the way back, I ended up carrying Evelyn because she wasn't wearing socks and got a little bit of a blister. And I said, sweetie, this is is why we wear socks with shoes. I've talked with you about that. Hopefully now, moving forward, she wears socks, particularly if we might be doing some walking. But it was uh, it, it was a beautiful day. The walk maybe was not our favorite part. We were pretty tired from that. But great company. And the Rockies played very well against the Arizona Diamondbacks. Just absolutely 
mopped the field with them. 12 to 4, I believe, was the final score. And a really good game. Really fun to watch. But some other Denver sports team, Colorado professional sports team news. The Avalanche Stanley Cup defense sputters to end in Game 7 of first round versus underdog Seattle Kraken. Arturi Lekonen was offside 17 seconds before what would have been the game-tying goal in the third period, according to some reporting at the Denver Post by Bennett Durando. This whole subject of professional sports, I will make no claims to being expert on. But the avalanche and this game that they got eliminated from the runnings for the Stanley Cup this year in is interesting to me because apparently one of the star players for the avalanche, a married man, uh, he got into a little bit of trouble, a little bit of trouble when a very intoxicated young woman was found in his hotel room or very close to his hotel room. And it turned out that he had some involvement with her and I don't know all the details and rumors can abound, of course, but that ended up sidelining him before this big game, as I understand it. Chris Bangle over at CBSSports.com has a little bit of a write-up on this. The player's name is Valery Nichuskin, I believe is how you say it. Uh, This woman was so intoxicated in his hotel room that she had to be taken to a hospital. And that is a bit concerning. The player himself just disappeared afterwards. He left town before this game against the Seattle Kraken and didn't reveal why, but it's pretty apparent, pretty obvious that a married man in this kind of a situation, out of town, he is ashamed. And the big question we should ask on the front end of situations like this is, was it worth it? But was it worth it? Was the cost worth the temporary enjoyment of yourself? Uh, I'll bet you anything, if you were to ask this guy, if somebody were to track him down and ask him, he would say, uh, definitely not. Definitely not. This is a life-changing thing that just happened. And I honestly feel very sorry for him, but also there's a lot of people who will be rightly upset with him for breaking his commitments. I mean, several, right? So for one thing, he's married. For another thing, here is his team, and they're going to take to the ice without him. And in some sense, he's brought dishonor on his entire team, which is something that folks who are from the East, more Oriental cultures, understand. We don't always necessarily understand it in the West in the same way anyways, but this player brought dishonor on his team and demoralized them before this game. 
And it's arguable that this was a major contributing factor in their loss. I, I think you could argue that. I think that's highly plausible. And I knew before the game, I heard about it from a guy at work that I was doing some testing with last week. I heard about that this was going to be a thing. And I thought to myself, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. It's not like when you have a season-ending injury where you say, okay, this guy, he is he is a trooper and we're going to go out there and win this one for him because he can't be with us on the ice tonight or on the field tonight. It's not like that. This is one where you really almost subconsciously probably want to throw the game because it's like, man, alive. What a jerk. <laughs> what a jerk move. We were depending on you. A lot of people were depending on you, your family and your team and your fans. And what the heck? You just abandoned us. So don't be that way with your commitments, your commitment to a wife, your commitment to children, your commitment to your family and friends beyond that, your commitment to a team, whether it's sports or it's some other kind of a team, don't be like that. It will come back to haunt you. It's just a matter of time before your sins will find you out. But the flip side is, the, the other side of the coin is, if you do well, that also will bear fruit in its season. A harvest of blessings will be there if you are sowing accordingly, if you are doing what is good, doing what is right, saying what is true. It may not be quickly. It may not even be in your lifetime, but you can have peace even just knowing when this bears fruit, it's going to be good fruit. Again, recognize that God has said do and don't do in his word. Yes, for his own glory, for his own namesake, but also to protect us. And think to yourself, if there were an application of God's word in this situation on the front end, not reactively, although we hope that there is repentance and restoration, we should pray for that. But if there were proactively a living for the Lord here, the outcome would have been very different. And I'm not talking about winning hockey games. I mean, winning at life. The outcome would have been very different here. But hopefully this guy and his family are okay, first and foremost. Hockey is a game, right? Games are games. But what really, really matters is family. And your relationship with God is reflected in how you treat your family. Very much so. But changing gears here a little bit, Matt Walsh posted to Facebook just yesterday, you know things have escalated dangerously when all nine justices actually agree about something. The Daily Wire reports in the link that Matt Walsh shared, all nine Supreme Court justices issue rare statement after leftist attacks on conservative justices. And what you have here is you have the Democrats gearing up to try and bring the Supreme Court of the United States of America under a combination of senatorial oversight and executive oversight. So what they're doing 
is they're trotting out all these scandals, supposedly, allegations, at least against conservative Supreme Court justices to try and make the case for essentially co-opting the Supreme Court, doing an end run, and being able to pressure the Supreme Court into giving Democrats, giving the left victories on issues that are important to the left. All nine Supreme Court justices, including the ones who have been appointed by Democrats over the years, all nine signed on to this statement saying, no, this is not appropriate. There's a harassment quality to, there's an intimidation quality to the attention being paid to the Supreme Court right now, and this is totally inappropriate. Our form of government here in the United States of America was conceived of as three co-equal branches, executive, legislative, judicial, not necessarily in that order, but they're supposed to be independent of one another, and they're supposed to provide checks and balances on each other. And it's not cool if the executive, for instance, is not getting what they want and therefore is just like, well, okay, then I'm going to take you over. That's what I'll do. We should recognize that this is something of a constitutional crisis that the left is floating, has been floating for a few years now, packing the court. That's been tried before. Let's just water down the appointees from previous administrations who disagreed with the politics of the current administration. Let's just water down those picks and get the outcomes that we want by loading up the overall number of Supreme Court justices. It's a dirty trick. And it's something of an end run around accountability. And so kudos to the Supreme Court for having a unanimous, united front against the pressure campaign, the harassment, the intimidation. It got especially ugly last summer with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the leaked draft opinion of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It got especially ugly where protesters and would-be assassins were showing up at Supreme Court justices' homes. And this White House administration, this president, basically took a hands-off approach. Like, well, we'll see what happens. Like Drago in Rocky. If he dies, he dies. Right? Whatever happens to them, they should have thought of that before they went thinking they could overturn Roe v. Wade. It was basically the attitude. But it's important that we not cave into that. It's important that the Supreme Court not cave into that. It's important that there would be a separation of powers here. And so I engaged a little bit in the comments on this post by Matt Walsh. There was a certain Jackie Searle, I think I'm saying her name right, who asked, should they be allowed to be crooked? And I replied to her, forgive me, Jackie Searle, is your question in reference to the Supreme Court justices or the Democrats? So I was rather proud of that comment in reply. There was also a certain Benjamin Maurice Stone who posted a meme. You are not pro-life if you'd force rape victims to carry the term. You are pro-rape. 
which is just absurd. But I replied to that as well. And I asked, are you for punishing children for the sins of their fathers in all cases or just in the case of rape? Just curious. Uh, Long and short of it, there is not a consistent way of thinking about the kinds of things that are said about Republicans and conservatives in this country relative the kinds of things that are tolerated openly from the left. There's not a consistency. There's a lot of partiality because at root, you have a sinful, wicked, willful pursuit of pleasure. It does go back to the kind of thinking that Peter is talking about in the New Testament, where you have these creatures of instinct, these brute beasts who ultimately will suffer for their wrongdoing. But what they want is not just to suffer themselves. They want the whole country to go with them and to affirm their error and their sin and their folly. And if we are wise, we won't do that. Regardless of whether they have the White House or both chambers of Congress or the Supreme Court or governorships or sanctuary cities or any of the rest, regardless of whether they have these various institutions, we on an individual basis need to be very sober about how we're reflecting God's truth in our lives and what we say and what we don't say and what we do and what we don't do. We should not go along with the wicked and we should pray that there would be revival, that there would be a return to Christian faith in public life, that that would stop being a kind of blank check when people are expressing their Christian faith in public life, that that would stop being a blank check for those who want to drive out Christians, that they then get to be abusive and mean and awful and nasty and ugly towards Christians to get us to be quiet. We shouldn't just assume that that's going to continue on forever. It hasn't been that way forever. It might be that way for longer than we should like. I think already it's been longer than we should like. But these things can change by God's grace. And we should pray for God's grace and for his mercy on this country. You know, it occurred to me at the Rockies game on Sunday afternoon, as we sang God Bless America, that again, as I've said before, We need to think carefully about how a country acts when it wants the blessings of heaven, how a country conducts itself, how the people of a country, how the government of a country conducts itself when said country wants the blessings of heaven. It's one thing to sing, God bless America. It's quite another thing for us to, as appropriate, put on sackcloth and ashes and commit ourselves to days of prayer and repentance for our sins against one another and against God. If we want the blessings of heaven, we need to repent. And there's a a long list, which doesn't have to do with my preferences. It really doesn't. It has to do with what God has communicated of his character and what he will bless. And on the other hand, what he has promised, he will discipline if not punish. If we look at God's word and we see how he's related to nations and peoples who flaunted their sin in front of him and were rebellious 
and flagrant and leading other nations and peoples into sin along with them, when we look at the history there, it should sober us and we should remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character has not changed. The purposes he has, the character of those purposes, more to the point, doesn't just not change, it is unchangeable. And so as such, we look at how God has related and we say, in the absence of a promise from him that he will no longer do that, you must assume he will continue on acting in that way, at least generally speaking. Now we have the flood in Genesis and God promises to not send a flood again to destroy all life on earth. And he puts the rainbow in the sky to serve as a reminder of his promise to never again destroy all life on earth with a flood of water. And what do we do in our day? Well, on the one hand, many of us in this country use the rainbow as a symbol of our liberation from God's moral standard. And we have pride parades in our streets, and we have indoctrination of our children. Now, one poll reports one in four American youth now identify as homosexual, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, two-spirit, one in four. And the symbol of this rebellion against God's standard for how we should conduct ourselves and express our sexual nature or our human nature sexually is the rainbow. We are playing a dangerous game. We are. We have a lot of people acting like brute beasts and irrational animals. And unfortunately, infuriatingly, we have a lot of clergy in this country who affirm these things and normalize these things from the pulpit and say, this is what you must affirm if you would be a good Christian. You have to affirm these things if you really love these people. And I say, if I really love these people, I have to warn them that they are destroying themselves. They are in need of repentance and God's grace in Christ Jesus. But Paul says, by no means, when he asks the rhetorical question, shall we sin that grace might abound all the more? He says, by no means. Yes, he gives more grace, but not when we treat grace like a cheap thing. And America is treating grace like a cheap thing. And unfortunately, a lot of clergy are leading that in a very mercenary way. They are hirelings and they are greedy for unjust gain. And they are the false teachers and the false prophets that Peter warns about. Don't be fooled by them. Don't be misled. Don't be taken in. And try to, if you can, warn others likewise. Kindly, patiently, graciously, gently, but clearly, nevertheless. Speaking of clergy, I woke up at about 2 a.m. this morning because our very youngest, who is one years old, Andrew Matthias Mullet, decided that he just didn't feel like sleeping anymore. And so then, in the interest of allowing my wife to sleep and to get all the rest she can because she's pregnant, 
I got up with Andrew and took him to my office and proceeded to look for something to watch in hopes that if I just sat there in my chair with a blanket over him and rocked him back and forth while watching something, he would fall back asleep. I gave up on the idea of me getting back to sleep pretty quickly when he would not be still. I tried to bring him to our bed and he just wanted to pretend it was WWE with the flying elbows and everything. He would stand up and then just do this elbow drop on me. And then he was trying to with Lauren. I thought, oh, no, no, no. I got to get him out of here. So I sat down at my computer desk with Andrew and I thought, okay, I, I don't watch a lot of anything, but maybe I can watch a movie that I wouldn't normally watch with the boys, you know, an action flick. Maybe what I'll do is I'll watch John Wick 3. So I thought about it. I considered it. And then I thought, hmm, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to watch John Wick 3 with Andrew. Maybe I want to find something a little calmer and a little more wholesome, a little bit more easy to get a baby to go back to sleep or a toddler back to sleep with. So what did I do? I went over to Canon Plus. We have a subscription to Canon Plus and browsed their selections. And then I remembered, because it was there on the main page, the landing page, that they recently did a documentary on the Puritans, which I had been interested in. And I'd been talking with my friend and one of our pastors at Summit View, Paul Pavlik, about it looked interesting. And I thought, oh, you know what? Let's give it let's give it a spin. So I watched it. I watched this two-hour, eight-minute documentary, which has a lot of big name reformed pastors and theologians interviewed about the Puritans and their impact and their legacy and their history, how they came to be and what they did, what they were known by, and how they left such a mark on Christendom and on the world by extension. And it was really great. I, you know, I'll say without giving you the play-by-play for the whole thing, if you have a Canon Plus subscription, you should definitely check out this documentary, Puritan, All of Life to the Glory of God. If you don't have a Canon Plus subscription, it might be worth even just a month. They've got a lot of other material on there that is good stuff. They've got some audiobooks that I still would like to go and check out and listen to on there. My kids have listened to a few audiobooks on Canon Plus. They've got some other documentaries. Even Exile is quite good. Uh, it looks like It's Good to Be a Man was made into a documentary. It's a book. It's a you know popular book, but they've made it into a feature-length documentary as well. And so I might check that out some other night that Andrew just doesn't feel like sleeping. But Puritan, all of life to the glory of God, it would be good for more of us to understand this history and how it pertains to the inheritance that we have as especially Protestant Christians in the United States of America, even in the year 2023. 
it can be helpful for us to temper some of our feelings of sadness or grief about the state of this country to recognize that there is no new thing under the sun, for one thing. And for another thing, we have examples of those who've gone before us to look to, some good examples in the Puritans, some imperfect examples, sure, but we also have cases of adversity that would be instructive for where we find ourselves right now. For example, this business with the intimidation of the Supreme Court by Democrats in the Senate and Democrats in the White House and in broader society and in the media is not without precedent. Some similar kinds of usurpations happened in the UK a few hundred years ago. You had various kings, James and Charles, who believed in the divine right of kings and dissolved parliament, for instance, infringed on the religious liberty of Presbyterians and other nonconformists, Puritans, for instance, overreaching, to put it mildly, and very much suppressing the appropriate, proper place of the independent clergy. In that context, the church was much more political than the church typically is in our day, but therein lay the both threat and opportunity as the king saw it at various times. Because if the king was Catholic, but here were these Protestant ministers, well then, something had to be done about those Protestants because they were subversive. If even the king was Protestant, but saw the annulment of the bishopric in favor of a plurality of elders in each parish, in each individual congregation. If the king saw the doing away with bishops and the need for bishops as a threat to his own power, his own authority, his own ability to command and control the nation, well then what did he do? He went after those who were saying, we need to have a plurality of elders because there's a certain common theme. You have a plurality of elders and next thing you know, you're going to want to have your country ruled like your church is being ruled. And this is all important for us to recognize as terribly relevant to why the United States of America's government is composed the way that it is. If you are not very savvy when it comes to political science and the history of our political processes and institutions in this country, in the United States, or in the West more broadly, but you have more of a familiarity with church polity and you're in favor of more of the Presbyterian model, plural elder-led churches, if you believe that that's more biblical, which I do, I certainly do favor that. When I look at the scriptures, I think that's what they testify to for lots of reasons and in lots of ways. If you are for that, then you should also be, and you also will be for separation of powers and checks and balances in our civil sphere with the civil authorities. You will be for there being checks and balances. And actually, even just the historically Protestant way of thinking about 
authority that comes from God typically says the home is one sphere of authority where the husband and the father should be holding sway. And the mother certainly has authority over children, but the father and the husband has authority over his wife and their children. So that's one sphere of authority. Then you also have the authority in a ecclesiological sense with the church. You have pastors, you have overseers, you have deacons, you have elders, whatever you want to call them. You have these officers of the church that we are told to appoint along certain lines. Paul tells us in his epistle to Timothy and in his letter to Titus, they have to meet these qualifications. This is their responsibility. So you have the ecclesiological sphere, and then you also have the civil sphere. And just even the idea that you have these three spheres, home, church, state, is in its way also a system of checks and balances that we see reflected in our having executive, legislative, judicial branches. But speaking of the executive in our country, Chris Enlow over at theblaze.com published a piece just yesterday, May Day, 2023, CNN analyst hits media with reality check after reporters fawn at Biden's White House Correspondents' Dinner jokes and host's reaction says it all. CNN analyst Scott Jennings, you will hear in just a moment when I play this clip. Here is cut one, Scott Jennings on CNN talking about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Take a listen. On Biden... Um, the, the line that will stick with me is, in a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my first two years in office. I'll talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away. I, I'm just going to, for the journalist in the room, he wasn't laughing with you. He was laughing at you. I mean, the reality is, I think he's mocking the press. The guy does not take questions, and he's up there joking about it. And I just, and they're clapping, and they're laughing about it, and I, I don't know. I just, I think he owes, I'm a, I'm pro-reporter. And I think the President of the United States ought to have to talk to these reporters and not mock them. How did it compare to the speeches that Donald Trump gave at the White House Correspondents' Center? Oh, gosh. What was the True most... question. What was the most... He didn't give them. He didn't show. Because he doesn't respect reporters. Ah, okay. So there you go. Now, <clears throat> to be fair, Trump was both more transparent and also more harassed by the media. And also, yes, he absolutely did bait them again and again and again. He stirred them up, wound them up, and let them loose. And he was very good at that and didn't seem to have any qualms or inhibitions about it. But at the same time, we have to recognize that the media was hostile. So he was hostile right back. It's not to say that it was right, but we're comparing apples and oranges, to say, ah, but what did Trump do? Biden has a lapdog media. And when the news media, when journalists don't give him softball questions in advance, they just don't get called on. They just don't get to ask their questions, whether in the White House press briefings or to him directly. And it's not just Scott Jennings making it up that this was a joke by Biden. I'll go ahead and play a supercut here, some of the highlights from this dinner, and you'll hear it from Biden himself. He definitely did make the joke, which 
we will talk about among the other clips in Supercut 1, Cut 2, if you will. In a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my first two years in office. I'll talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away. Happy to be here. Oh, real quick, Mr. President, I think you left some of your classified documents up here. You can get to the... Yeah. Yeah, no, don't give them to him. I'll put him in a safe place. He don't know where to keep them. I must. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's the man of his prime. Don Lemon released a statement saying he got fired from CNN. Then CNN released a statement saying that they offered Don a meeting. They had to part ways because Don Lemon can't even accurately report a story about Don Lemon. Yes, Don Lemon was a diva, and he said a couple of women are raggedy in the face, but that's a promotion at Fox News. Vaccinated the nation, transformed the economy, earned historic legislative victories and midterm results, but the job isn't finished. I mean, it is finished for Tucker Carlson. The untouchable Tucker Carlson is out of a job. Yeah. Okay. Some people celebrate it. But to Tucker's staff, I want you to know that I know what you're feeling. I work at The Daily Show, so I, too, have been blindsided by the sudden departure of the host of a fake news program. Last year, your favorite Fox News reporters were able to attend because they were fully vaccinated and boosted. This year, with that $787 million settlement, they're here because they couldn't say no to a free meal. I've been, I've been watching and looking around all night. Y'all look good. You dress nice. You got the nice threads on. You got the jewelry glistening. Look like everybody got a little piece of that settlement money from Fox News. And you get the picture. Okay. So, Fox News bad. <laughs> they don't like Tucker Carlson. There is actually a funny joke a little later on. I cut about halfway through the highlights reel from NBC News' YouTube account. But there is actually a funny part where Roy Wood Jr. says in this very over-the-top way, oh, I love Dominion voting machines. I love them. Yeah, you know, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> you know, like very over-the-top, like he's afraid of getting sued for defamation if he doesn't. But here's the problem, right? Here's the problem that you have a lapdog media and it's too easy it's too easy to make fun of Fox News as if the only significant place of criticism in the corporate media landscape is everything that's wrong with journalism. Because what the left really wants is they want everybody reading from the same script and saying these things are great. Let's have a discussion about race or about sexuality or about gender or about the climate or about taxes or about fill in the blank. Let's have a conversation about all these things. So long as you don't challenge what we want to do, we'll have a discussion about how we'll do it, but we're, we're not going to actually debate with you whether we should do it, whether it's moral for us to do it, whether God approves, whether these are the kinds of things that a nation which fears God, which wants the blessings of heaven will embrace. We're not going to have a discussion about that. And if you try to, we will mock you. We will litigate you into oblivion. We will fire you. We will boycott you. We will do all that we can to neutralize you. 
and then we'll yuck it up with all of the sycophants as to how good of a job we did neutralizing you. This, again, goes back to the Puritans, and it's an important thing for us to note that similar contempt for accountability led to major reforms in the UK. It led to the beheading of a king or two who was tried and found guilty of treason for subverting the laws of the land. And in his own defense, he would say, I am the law. But you had Puritans, Puritan adjacent ministers in that case, who were willing to write on these things extensively and bring the scriptures to bear on the question of where authority comes from and when authority is to be taken away from somebody who has abused their authority. These ideals don't rise out of Roman Catholicism. They rise out of Protestant thought. The idea of a separation of powers and checks and balances, that rises out of Protestant thought. And it's informed by a keen awareness of man's sinful nature, that you don't want to concentrate too much power in one person or in a small group of people over a whole nation, because what will they do? They will abuse that power, that authority. They will violate the laws of both God and man. And they'll be arbitrary, and they'll be capricious, and they'll be cruel, and they'll be tyrannical. And there is actually a place historically for Christians to call for repentance of that, even in the scriptures. People will say, oh, we don't see the church getting political in the New Testament. And I say, you're missing it. You are gliding right over a lot of verses that speak to the political ramifications of the gospel message of faith in Christ. You can say the goal of the gospel was not to reform political institutions in the Roman Empire or in Palestine or in these Greek city-states. You can say that the goal of the gospel message is not, first and foremost, political, but I'll say I agree with N.T. Wright on this point that In a certain sense, nothing could be more political than the message of the gospel. Even just the Evangelion, having been originally a proclamation from a triumphant Roman emperor or general, the good news was that Caesar had conquered. Caesar had won his great battle. Caesar had vanquished his foes. That was the term that was used by Christians to announce the conquering of sin and death by Christ Jesus our Lord. They didn't shy away from the term evangelion because it was originally a political term. In fact, they said, no, that's Christ's actually. The gospel, not just a gospel, the gospel is what Christ has done by the power of God. Even the term for church, ecclesia, originally, again, was a political term. It was the gathering of the citizens of a Greek city-state to discuss the business of their city, their shared 
business, their shared interests and decisions that needed to be made. They would discuss with each other and debate with each other before choosing a course of action. And yet ecclesia wasn't avoided as a term to describe God's people, Christ's people. That is the term that gets translated in our New Testament as church. So we have to understand when the apostles are martyred, all of them except for John the Beloved, it is extremely political. It's always a political matter when they are hauled before governors and tribunes and civil magistrates. It is always a very political thing because here you have this constituency and this faction and these people over here who the powers that be want to placate and the complaint as often as not in the first several centuries of Christendom, of church history, the complaint is as often as not, these Christians are saying Jesus is Lord, we have no king but Caesar. And so these are competing claims as the world recognizes. Do we also recognize that these are competing claims when the civil authorities are not being obedient to God and they're not rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil? Do we also recognize that like John the Baptist calling Herod to repent of his personal sin, taking his brother's wife, Herodias, divorced Herod's brother so that the two of them could get married. Herod divorced his wife. Herod's brother divorced his wife. And then Herod married his former sister-in-law, again, in violation of what Leviticus 18 says. And did John the Baptist say, Herod is, according to the Roman Senate, king of the Jews, and we have to submit to the governing authorities. So therefore, I'm not going to get political. I'm going to stay out of all that. No. What cost John the Baptist his head was that he told Herod publicly to repent because it was a public sin. It was a known thing. And Herod being the so-called king of the Jews didn't keep Jesus from being really and truly the king of the Jews. See, there again, there's a political ramification that we find right in the gospel accounts of Jesus that we can just glide right over if we are just sure coming into the text that there is nothing political that the church should be involved in. That's something we're reading into the text in our day. We're not getting it out of the text. What we would get out of the text is when Jesus is referred to as king of the Jews, that is a competing claim with Herod, who is getting his authority from the Roman Senate. When the Roman Senate declares that Herod is king of the Jews, and then here is this Jewish rabbi named Jesus, Bar-Joseph, being called king of the Jews, the reason that's a pressure point to get Jesus crucified is because it will be perceived and portrayed and presented as subversive politically, as the makings of rebellion against Rome. And in some sense, it is rebellion. And in a truer sense, this is the restoration of proper authority, the proper hierarchy, which is that God rules and reigns even over the Roman Empire. And so first and foremost, he gets to declare who is 
the King of the Jews. His will be done. We don't pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Caesar's kingdom come, Caesar's will be done. We pray, thy kingdom come, Father in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for Christ's kingdom here on earth. And we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us in his word. Personally, I am not shocked that a Roman Catholic president, Joseph R. Biden, has a rather low view of the separation of powers and the checks and balances, being a Roman Catholic. I mean, he's not a very good Roman Catholic because he has a very low view of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church with regards to abortion, for instance, and homosexuality, for instance, and transgenderism, for instance. He is not a good Catholic. He's a very bad Catholic. He should be denied mass. He should be excommunicated, really, truly. But even there, I say that, and that was a concern when John F. Kennedy was running for president, that here is this guy, he's a Roman Catholic. If he wins the presidency, are we going to really be presided over by him or by the Pope? And so here's Joe Biden, and that will be what he hides behind, but he can't hide from God. And that's the point. That's the point that the Protestant understands. And that's why we had checks and balances and not just we tattle on the king or the emperor to the pope and hope that he's not depended for his largesse and his security on the king or the emperor that we're asking for relief from. Moving on. Soros-backed prosecutor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, is building a case to remove me from office. So this is a state attorney. In Florida, Monique H. Warrell for Florida's Ninth Judicial Circuit. She recently said at the Marion County NAACP Freedom Fund late last week, she anticipates DeSantis will remove her as soon as this week, reporting from the Daily Wire. I say that is all for the best, and the sooner the better. I would like to see. Everybody that George Soros has backed, removed. If, if we can do that, if we can accomplish that, that would be super. That would be super great. It's not cool that Soros is colonizing the United States of America with all of his ill-gotten gains. It's not cool. It's a big problem, and it needs to stop. He is not on the side of the good and the true and the beautiful, putting it mildly. Another piece from the Daily Wire, Nancy Mace on DeSantis signing heartbeat bill into law to protect unborn babies. Not compassionate. That's what she says. This is not compassionate. I beg to differ. This is what compassion looks like towards the innocent, towards the unborn. They have committed no crime. And even in the case of rape, as we talked about with the Matt Walsh comment section on the bit about Supreme Court justices making a statement, a unanimous declaration about their autonomy, their independence, their separation of powers purview. As I said there, even in the case of rape or incest, this is not a guilty party when we're talking about the unborn baby or the born baby. If you can't bear to raise this child, 
give the child up for adoption to someone, some couple who can't have children of their own or would like to grow their family and will take good care of that child. If you can't or you won't take care of the child, give the child up for adoption. And you know what I would love to see followed up is a reform of how adoption works here in this country. The laws concerning children being adopted by parents and families that want them. I would love to see that overhauled to make it easier, less expensive for Christian parents to take in these children, as Christian parents have historically for the last 2,000 years taken in unwanted children. Ever since Roman days, it was Christians in the Roman Empire who collected abandoned children that had just been left exposed to the elements, brought them in, fed them, taught them. That's another way to grow the church, by the way, is to either have children or to adopt other people's unwanted children. I say kudos to DeSantis for doing the brave thing here. And even if very wealthy donors say, nah, we'll pass. We'll pass on DeSantis. We, the people, need a president like Ron DeSantis has demonstrated himself capable of being, in my opinion, in my judgment, in his time as Florida's governor. Zachary Stieber over at the Epoch Times posted yesterday a article about how the Republican National Convention's Ronna McDaniel reacted to Trump's threat of skipping debates. Not a good look, in my view, at all. The head of the Republican National Committee, RNC, says former President Donald Trump is free to not participate in the 2024 presidential debates. Trump recently suggested he would skip the primary debates, in part because polls suggest he has a large lead over other declared GOP candidates. Quote, that's his choice, and every candidate is going to make that calculation, end quote. Ronna McDaniel said in response while on Fox News Sunday. Here's another quote. What I think the American people want to see is these candidates. They want to see what they're articulating, and especially what is your plan to take us out of the misery of Joe Biden? And I agree with that. I agree with that. But I don't agree with the skipping of debates. We need to have the debates. We need better debates. We need substantive debates, not everybody talking over each other and not 30-second soundbite debates. Let's have long-form, substantive, free-ranging, free-roaming, lightly moderated, moderated by the guy who turns the microphone signal on and off, depending on whose turn it is to talk. Uh, let's have those kinds of debates, both in the primaries and in the official presidential debates, once the parties have put forward their candidates. Speaking of candidates and debates, RFK Jr. is quoted here, and a video actually is embedded in a post from April 30th by Jim Hoft over at Gateway Pundit. I'm going to go ahead and play the clip. It's just under two minutes long of RFK talking about what has been made of climate change during an interview with Kim Iverson. Here is cut three. Take a listen. Climate issues and pollution issues are being exploited by, you know, the, the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates and all of these uh, big, you know, mega billionaires, the same way that COVID was exploited. 
uh, to use it as an excuse to clamp down top-down totalitarian controls on society and to um, and then to give us engineering solutions. And if you look closely, as it turns out, the guys who are promoting those engineering solutions are the people who, who own the IPs, the patents for those solutions. Oh, it's a way, you know, it's, it's being used. They've given climate uh, chaos a bad name, you know, because people now see that it's just another crisis that's being used to strip mine the wealth of the poor and to, you know, to enrich billionaires. And, uh, you know, I, I, for 40 years, have had the same policy on climate and engineering. You can go check my speeches from the 1980s, and I've said, the most important solution for environmental issues is not top-down controls. It's free market capitalism. Now, that's an unexpected take from a Democrat candidate for the presidency these days. But this is exactly why I would love to see RFK Jr. be able to successfully primary Joe Biden. Because I agree with a lot of what Kennedy is saying there. Not everything, but I agree with a lot of what Kennedy is saying there as to how concerns about the environment and man's impact on the environment has been hijacked by powerful interests in the WEF. Very powerful, very wealthy, very influential billionaires have hijacked people's emotional attachment to the issue of the climate. And they are using that emotional attachment to manipulate whole countries, whole continents, the whole world into a place of subservience along very dangerous lines. The pushing of the eating of the bugs, the dismantling of our transportation system and our power grid. These are significant overreaches by people who in many cases are not elected. They're not actually governing authorities. They're just very wealthy. And then they buy governing authorities. They install them by pouring a lot of money into political parties and media corporations and political campaigns. They pour a lot of money into academia and into the corporate world. And it hurts common people like me and you. It hurts families like mine and yours. And RFK Jr. being on a debate stage with Joe Biden is very important for the security of this country moving forward. If we will continue to be a country at all, I want to see RFK Jr. debate Joe Biden on a primary stage. And likewise, Trump should be putting America's interest more holistically first. If you want to say make America great again or America first, put America first by showing up to the debates and may the best man win. Because if you're not going to show up to the primary debates, then are you going to show up to the general debates with whoever the Democratic pick is? I don't know. I, you should. That's another way of affirming that we are for accountability. Should the debate process be overhauled? Absolutely. Yes, it should. So that we have debate. But don't just skip the debates because you 
say these other Republicans are beneath you or Joe Biden is beneath you. That comes across as arrogant and not a good sales pitch for re-election, in my view. But Chuck Todd over at NBC said on Sunday that Joe Biden, quote, really needs former President Donald Trump to be the Republican Party's nominee in 2024. Embedded in the Daily Wire write-up is an extended quote from Joe Biden. He says, but you know, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you've paid for your entire life while cutting taxes from the very wealthy, dictating what healthcare decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Chuck Todd addressed those remarks during a panel discussion saying, quote, when we saw the announcement video from Joe Biden, it was not about what he did, end quote. So what you have in essence from even the lapdog media is an admission that Joe Biden's record so far into his presidency is not selling it. It's not persuasive. That makes him vulnerable to a challenge from RFK, thankfully. Kudos to RFK Jr. for announcing a run. But if Joe Biden thinks he can just run off of not being Trump forever, he might be right. In a lot of people's minds, he might be right. There are a lot of people who hate Trump more than they love life itself. And it's deeply personal to them because they've invested a lot of angry rhetoric, a lot of destroyed relationships over the last several years, really since 2016 at least. They've invested a lot personally in seeing not Trump so much, but his constituents, the people who support him most, silenced and vilified. And those people, I don't see being persuaded by however much damage Biden does to this country. I don't see them being persuaded by however scandalous his family has been in all of the allegations and the evidence and the investigations around money being paid to the family in exchange for access to Joe Biden. I don't see any of that distracting even for a moment the rage that the left has directed towards Trump. I could be wrong. And you don't have to convince everybody, but Todd is right. Chuck Todd is right. Biden really needs Trump to be the nominee for the Republican Party because he doesn't have he doesn't have anything really to brag about in his own accomplishments. He needs a red herring. He needs a straw man. And Trump can be that for Biden and the Democrats, just like he has been for the last several years. But switching gears, I'll play another clip here, cut four, of Elon Musk sitting down with Bill Maher for HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher Friday night, talking about wokeness and where did it come from and what's it about and who 
who should we blame? Right. Whose fault is it? Uh, more to the point. Here's cut four. See what you think. Woke mind virus. How did it start? Was it bats? Was it a, a <laughs> escape from a lab? I mean, what is your assessment of what? Because it's fairly recent. <laughs> why did, why, how did it start and why? I was, I, so I was trying to figure out where, where it's coming from. I think it's actually been a long time brewing um, in that it's, uh, I think it's been going on for a while. Um, it, 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 and um, the, the amount of indoctrination that, that's happening in schools and, and universities is, I think, far beyond what parents realize. Um, and I, I only I sort of came to realize this somewhat, somewhat late. Um, the, the, the experience that we had uh, in, in high school and college is not the experience that, that kids today are having um, and, and hasn't been for, I don't know, ten, 10 years, maybe 20 years. So uh, are parents themselves also a big part of the problem? They, well, I, I suppose in some cases that parents, but, but I think like the parents are just generally not aware of what their, their kids are being taught uh, or, or what they're not being taught. They're, they're letting the kids think that they're well, equal. They're, I mean, yeah. Let me let me let me give you, let me give you an example that that a friend of mine told me, which uh, you know, his uh, daughters uh, go to college in, in oh, sorry, go to high school in, in the Bay Area, um, and um, and he he was asking them like, well, so who are the, you know, who are the first few presidents of the United States? Uh, they, they could name Washington, uh, but and I said, well, what do you know about him? Well, he was a slave owner. What else? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing. Right. Like, uh, okay, that's maybe you should know more than that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that—that that is the woke mind virus, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that is that is correct. I would agree with what Musk is saying to a certain extent, while at the same time saying parents should know. Parents should know what their kids are learning in schools. And far too many parents want to say, if they don't see any problems, if they don't hear any problems, then their school is different. And they make excuses, even if something does come up, and they say, well, yeah, but that's just that one teacher, right? There have always been those teachers. But really... This is where it would be useful for more people to buy my book. I mean, it would be useful to me because I would sell more copies of my book. And obviously, I stand to make a little bit of money there. But it would be good for parents to read my book where I talk about the history of the public education system in this country and what are its assumptions at root. You know, what is the vision of the good life, which the inventors of our current system had and shared and wanted to propagate. What was the vision of the good life that they had for children and for the country? It was a progressive vision of the good life from the beginning and a decidedly secular and statist and, dare I say it, socialist vision of the good life from the beginning. It was not a noticeably American, historically Protestant vision of the good life. And so a century of compulsory schooling, government schooling, 
thanks to the likes of John Dewey, now has a lot of kids not getting really an education in much besides being activists, being sexually immoral, and being rude and self-indulgent, and thinking that liberty is nobody ever tells you you can't do something. What if true liberty is you are free to do what God has made you to do? And therefore also, yes, sometimes people will be prevented from barring your way when you are doing what God wants you to do. But this idea of the atomized individual coupled with collectivism, where the individual liberty extends not much farther than you can have sex with whoever you want to have sex with, married, not married, doesn't matter, and if a baby results from that, you can get an abortion. That idea of liberty would be foreign to the founders of this country. That vision of freedom is not sustainable because it's actually slavery. And the people who know how to bait you into doing what they want you to do and giving them what they want to get from you, all they have to do when you're hooked on that drug of being your own God or your stomach being your God, being a brute beast, all they have to do is appeal to your natural senses and your feelings and your pleasures. As long as they're giving you pleasure or license to get pleasure, you'll keep on giving them your inheritance. We are a prodigal nation and parents should know better, but then here's part of the problem. Most of the adults who have children in the public schools today were themselves products of public education. And so there's a cumulative effect over time in this country with the subjection of all our conceptions of right and wrong, true and false, beautiful and ugly, to whatever the state tells us. And insofar as the left dominates the academy, it has a monopoly on the education system and the corporate media and pop culture and the political process and many corporations. Insofar as the left is saying Caesar is Lord, a lot of these American parents don't know freedom when freedom would mean you can say Jesus is Lord. They don't know that kind of freedom, and they need to know that kind of freedom if they would protect their children really truly from what their children are being subjected to. And this is why we homeschool. But let's talk about a different book. I don't want to just promote my book. I get to feeling like I'm being selfish or self-promoting, which I don't want to do and I don't want to be. It would not be good for you and it wouldn't be good for me. This might be the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, but the big idea, contrary to what some people suppose, is not to talk about myself all the time. It is not for you to say, oh, look at Garrett. He's so smart. He's so savvy. He's so clever. He's so wise, right? Contrary to what some people suppose, the point of this show is not to get you to think I know everything. But that actually leads in neatly with Oz Guinness's book, Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion, which I just finished yesterday. It's the 25th book so far this year. I am ahead of schedule. My plan was I want to read at least 52 books this year. I'm almost halfway to that goal, and we are not even quite halfway through the year. But the publisher's summary from Audible 
reads as follows. In the post-Christian context, public life has become markedly more secular and private life infinitely more diverse. Yet many Christians still rely on cookie-cutter approaches to evangelism and apologetics. Most of these methods assume that people are open to, interested in, and needy for spiritual insight when increasingly most people are not. The urgent need, then, is the capacity to persuade, to make a convincing case for the gospel to people who are not interested in it. In his magnum opus, Os Guinness offers a comprehensive presentation of the art and power of creative persuasion. Christians have often relied on proclaiming and preaching, protesting and picketing, but are strikingly weak in persuasion the ability to talk to people who are closed to what is being said. Actual persuasion requires more than a one-size-fits-all approach. Guinness notes, quote, Jesus never spoke to two people the same way, and neither should we, end quote. Following the tradition of Erasmus, Pascal, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Malcolm Muggeridge, and Peter Berger, Guinness demonstrates how apologetic persuasion requires both the rational and the imaginative. Persuasion is subversive, turning the tables on listeners' assumptions to surprise them with signals of transcendence and the credibility of the gospel. This book is the fruit of 40 years of thinking honed in countless talks and discussions at many of the leading universities and intellectual centers of the world. Discover afresh the persuasive power of Christian witness from one of the leading apologists and thinkers of the era. Copyright 2015, Os Guinness, published 2016, Blackstone Audio Incorporated. Let me just start off this brief review because I don't have much time to dedicate to this. I read this book because I've had some rocky relationships with a few people over the years, which has been painful to me. It's been painful to me to see what has been unfolding at the macro level and then to try and talk about it in depth, in detail, and to try to be persuasive and to try to bring compelling arguments and evidences and to find that very often on a very personal level, certain friends and family members of mine have not just not been persuaded, they have been very angry with me. Uh, They've in some cases just stopped talking to me, distanced themselves. In other cases, they've been calmly, cautiously critical of me In other cases, I've had some very heated, very painful arguments. And this is not the first book I've read to try and improve my communication. You could say this entire podcasting venture is actually more than trying to prove to you how smart I am. It's me trying to practice speaking well and effectively and trying to improve my communication for real life. The, the, the podcast is not necessarily real life, but if this is practice, then 
maybe when I have those conversations with people in my family, among my friends, with strangers, with acquaintances, with the general public, maybe those conversations go better. Maybe people change their minds or listen and are not upset and are not angry. And of course, I temper that expectation. As I come to this book, I appreciate actually how Oz Guinness encourages the reader to temper that expectation. You won't be able to guarantee that everyone who hears what you have to say, if you're telling the truth, you you won't be able to guarantee that everybody is going to respond well if you just do it the right way. Jesus was sinless, faultless. We couldn't have improved on any of his sermons or private conversations that we read about in the Gospels or those that happened outside of the Gospel accounts since he talked plenty with people more than just what is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet, very often, when Jesus told the truth and did what was good, he was hated by a certain contingent which depended on the status quo for their comfortability and largesse. So we have to know, right? We have to know just from that fact alone and from what Christ called his followers to, that they would be hated by many for his sake, that they would suffer for his name's sake, that they would be blessed. And so doing, we have to know from reading the New Testament, from reading church history, that you can't base what is effective communication, appropriate communication, rightly handling the word of truth off of the response that you get. You can't reliably do that. But on the other hand, we do still have commands in Scripture to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Just because we're in Christ or we can say we're following Christ, that doesn't mean that all of your ways of talking to people, talking with people, talking about things that you believe to be true, all of that is therefore sanctified, so long as you can say, I'm suffering for righteousness' sake. So we know that, right? We know that. There is such a thing as being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and there also is such a thing as making bad choices and suffering the consequences of your bad choices. If you're rude, you're not being loving. And if you're rude and obnoxious and disrespectful towards people needlessly, that also will provoke a angry response, an upset response. But the confusing thing in our day, which Oz Guinness, he gets at this. He understands it, I think, to a great extent and communicates it well. For the Christian in this day, there has to be a metric that allows us to, on the one hand, endure persecution faithfully and be steadfast and at the same time, try to be persuasive. And part of what he recommends here is that we embrace being considered foolish. So he holds up the example of Paul, for instance, and Paul addressing openly in his epistles in the New Testament, being dismissed, mocked, derided as foolish. 
And not just Paul, but the gospel that Paul preaches being dismissed as foolishness. Paul addresses that in his epistle, and he says, yeah, this is a stumbling block to Jews. It's a whole lot of foolishness to the Greeks. They demand proofs and miracles between the two of them. We preach Christ crucified. And we also embrace that the so-called folly of our preaching is better than the wisdom of the world, all at the same time. So you would say, if you were somebody just in the mainstream of American culture right now, who doesn't even know anything more about George Washington than that he owns slaves, like Elon Musk is telling about to Bill Maher and his anecdote, you're somebody like that. And you would say, anytime a Christian is responded to angrily or offends somebody, that they're not being like Christ because Christ said, do not judge. And Christ said to love people. And even the president of the United States campaigns on, not for no reason, don't vote for the other guy because Republicans want to tell you who you can love, which is a lie. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell, actually. To tell you you can't diddle little kids and that that's evil that you want to and you're trying to normalize that, that's not the same thing as telling you who you can and cannot love. But see, I say that and I say repent of this sexual immorality, which is so common in our day and celebrated by so many, and they build their lives around it. Their identity is their sexual perversion by their own admission, but they want to be proud of it instead of being ashamed of it. They will not be persuaded. And that's another thing in Fool's Talk that I appreciate is Guinness says, as a number of close friends of mine have said over the years when we talk about this privately at length, off and on here and there, ultimately, this is a work of the Holy Spirit if it will be successful, unless God grants to someone the ability to hear, not just that they have ears, but that they hear and understand. Not just that they have eyes and they can see, but that they see and they perceive. They're able to make sense of these things unless God gives somebody the ability in that regard, then they won't appreciate what we have to say as Christians. It will be nonsense and highly offensive. And they will reach for either the ready explanation that we are insane or stupid or barring that, if they can't dismiss us as insane, we're clearly sane, or stupid, we're clearly intelligent, then they'll accuse us of malicious intent. And this is very similar to the remarks that C.S. Lewis, famous 20th century English apologist, Christian writer, thinker, author of the Chronicles of Narnia and many other great books. The Space Trilogy is good. Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, etc. C.S. Lewis pointed out, Jesus couldn't have been merely a good teacher. He must have been either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And so also with us, those who don't believe in Christ and they don't follow Christ and they have eyes, but they don't see and they have ears, but they don't hear and understand and turn 
they will similarly reach for ready-made explanations, prepackaged, to dismiss us, excuses to marginalize and ostracize and push us to the outer limits of society. And this is no new thing under the sun, which is important for us to know and appreciate. That also allows us to avail ourselves the encouragement and example and instructions of previous generations of Christians. But this is no new thing under the sun. And yet, perhaps, maybe, just maybe, Os Guinness is on to something when he says we should lean into and embrace that we will be considered fools for Christ's sake. And as he points out, too, in his book, you don't want some formulaic approach because people are different. Their objections are going to be different. Their appeals are going to be different. Now, here I'll say, Calvinists come in lots of variations and forms, and there are certainly Calvinists who are persuasive, and they do endeavor to be persuasive. There are other Calvinists who will say, What's the point if this person's dead in their sins? I'm just going to preach. I'm just going to follow this formula. And anybody who doesn't like it, well, it's clearly a sign that they're not one of the elect. And I say, God knows who the elect are. We don't. I agree with my neighbor two houses down, who's a Calvinist and who thinks that I'm a Calvinist. He insists I'm a Calvinist. And I just don't know it, which is funny. But I agree with JP. We're of the same mind here. God knows who the elect are, but that doesn't mean that we do. And so we should study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We should always be prepared to give a reason to anybody who asks for an answer. Hey, why do you have this hope? And if they have good motives and they just are really genuinely curious, they don't know much about Christianity and they don't quite understand why you as a Christian come to different conclusions and make different choices and still have some cheerfulness in certain cases where others despair, or you're sober where others are jubilant, or you're hesitant where others are eager, whether they are asking those questions from a place of genuine curiosity or hostility, and there just happen to be other people observing and listening, all the same. We're called to give an answer with gentleness and respect. We're also called to let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And that can be persuasive, coupled with what we will say, however much or little, about whatever topic. In a a rather sad turn of events took place yesterday, up the street at the home of a older gentleman who lives by himself and is wheelchair-bound, retired after, I think it was 30 years, working for Kodak as an HVAC technician in their maintenance department back when the Kodak plant was a really, really big employer in this area. Some emergency response vehicles were parked out in front of his house in the afternoon. And I heard about it from my wife that our sons who check on this older gentleman on a regular basis, take him cookies when we have fresh baked home baked cookies, take him banana bread and carrot cake and other things that we make 
help do his yard work, help clean his garage and organize it. Our sons had noticed the emergency vehicles and wanted to go check out what's going on. And so they did. They went up the street and they asked a police officer, a woman, who was standing out front, what was going on. And she said, well, I really can't tell you much, but I don't think he's going to make it. And that was really hard for my sons and my daughter to hear. And there were tears shed. There was crying and praying for him. But as I was checking on my sons and asking how they were doing, if they'd heard anything back, they tried texting. Ron is his name. Had they gotten a text back from him? My son Daniel told me at a certain point that no, hadn't heard back yet, but he didn't think that Ron was a believer. And I told Daniel, I said, well, that's very sad, and hopefully he did come to faith in Christ. But I'll tell you this, that your guys' kindness to him, your checking on him, your caring about him and for him, was probably the most persuasive apologetic you could have offered up. And I know for a fact that others in this neighborhood have noticed as well that when it's snowy out and that driveway and his sidewalk need shoveled, my sons have gone and done it for him without asking, sometimes without even any promise of payment. He does pay, has paid, but my wife has an app for people in our neighborhood to message if a pet goes missing or if there's a yard sale or neighborhood watch type suspicious activity is going on. And it was in the last year, this past winter, that she told me she saw some people talking about how some very sweet young boys, young men in the neighborhood had just made their day by going over and helping shovel their disabled neighbor's driveway and sidewalk without being asked, without even knocking on the door, just went over and did it. And I look at that, I think about that, and I think if you couple that with what Os Guinness is saying here, and you embrace that the world that doesn't know Christ, those who don't know Jesus as their Savior, will see that we are Christians and will know that we are Christians by our love and are living in light of truth and are speaking only what is true. When they see that, and then we just leave it to God. Leave it to God to bless where he will. That is a good thing. That speaks to what Paul writes about in Thessalonians. Aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs, so that you may be dependent on no one and walk properly before outsiders. You might still be called a fool. You might still be hauled on trumped-up charges before magistrates, before civil authorities, falsely accused. You might still be hated and mocked and vilified, but you'll have a good conscience, and there will be a blessing and a reward from God, and you will overcome, ultimately, evil with the good in that way. So all that is to say, I will recommend this book to you. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads. It was good. I enjoyed it. It was a good read. 
Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion by Oz Guinness. Check it out. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. Speaking of Fool's Talk, this fool needs to go get back to work. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.